everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we talk about how and why it's important to think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined by our theologian training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. Just got back from a nice little vacation. Nice to kind of get away for a little bit. but And you may pay for it. I, I, I might, we'll, we'll have to see, but it, uh, it was, it's good to be back though. It's good to kind of be back in this little schedule, at least for now. We'll see. It looks like things are changing for the worst right now. So at least trending in the wrong direction. So we'll see if things stay consistent much longer, but for a brief time though, we have been, uh, we've been liberated. Yeah. From, uh, from quarantine, from all these other things, and you you got to experience life on the the outside again, at least for a moment. At, uh, at least for it, a few days. And it may be regrettable. <laughs> Who knows? Keep you updated. This may be a one man podcast. I don't know what yeah, we'll, we'll do without you. <laughs> well, well, hey, I already wrote the uh, uh, script for the next episode, so you can just do that one solo. Yeah, there's one and, in the clip at least, and. Then, uh, then figure out where to go from there when I'm no more. That'll be perfect. All right, before we get into today's subject, uh, dealing with Hagar as a continuation of our uh, discussion on liberation theology, just want to remind you that you can find this and all of our previous episodes on strongchurch.org, and you can send any comments, criticism, questions, uh, whether they're directly about what we're talking about here or in past episodes or you know, adjacent to those things, or maybe some things that we didn't cover you'd like us to talk about, you can send those to our email at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. We'd love to see those things. Uh, And also check out uh, all the other content available, written or otherwise, on strongchurch.org. Today we are going to continue our discussion from the last episode of Liberation Theology. We we plugged this one there, uh, that we're going to jump into the text of Genesis 16, uh, and look at the story of Hagar and what it means uh, for liberation theology and and how it helps uh, maybe uh, illustrate what we talked about uh, in this this past episode uh, to see in Scripture how this kind of stuff plays out. Certainly not the only place where we see this idea, uh, but a a very good one. So uh, talk to us a little bit about I'm sure people are familiar with the story of Hagar and, and Abram and, and Sarai, uh, but talk to us a little bit about uh, this story and how, you know, th- through the lens of liberation theology, how do, how do we view this that way? Uh, why would we? Things along those lines. Yeah, so last week we gave just a very brief description of liberation theology, and we talked about how liberation theology is a theological lens that we can look through when we're reading scripture that highlights and points out and brings to the surface the ideas and the theme of liberation that is seen throughout the biblical story. It helps us to see God as a God of liberation, as a God who from the very beginning all the way through the the biblical narrative is a God who cares about liberating people from whatever kind of oppression they may be a part of, whether it be 
Israel's oppression in Egypt or uh, Jesus bringing liberty to captives, sight to the blind, whatever it may be, that God is concerned with liberating people from oppression. Hmm. And so when we think about the story of Hagar and we read the story of a- of Hagar and Abram and Sarai through this lens of liberation theology, we're going to read the story with a focus on Hagar because Hagar is the victim in this story. Uh, Hagar is the one who's oppressed. She's a, a slave. Um, she's forced into this relationship with uh, Abram, and there's all kinds of things that result from that. And so, but then at the end, she ends up in several ways to be liberated through the working of God. And so this is an example of when we're reading this story with that liberation focus, we're going to focus on Hagar and her role in this story. And in doing that, something else that we're going to be doing is we're going to be uh, giving this story what's called a feminist reading. Now, I want to make sure and define that for us. In biblical studies, feminism is not in any way connected to modern uh, movements of feminism. But in biblical studies, feminism is reading a story with a focus on the background characters or on the characters that are oppressed. It's reading a story through the eyes of the characters that we normally wouldn't. And so in a patriarchal society, for example, like you had in the Old Testament, typically it's going to be reading a story through the eyes of women because they're typically the ones in the background. But that's not always the, the case. There's plenty of background characters who are men. There are plenty of men who are oppressed. Um, you even have the people of Israel at times that reading stories through their eyes would be considered a uh, feminist reading. And so reading the story of Hagar in that way is means that rather than reading the story through the eyes of Abram or Sarai, which is what we typically do, because we see them as kind of the main characters in this story, and right. so we read it from their perspective, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to read this story through the eyes of Hagar. We're going to try to understand the events through the perspective of Hagar, the one who is oppressed, the one who is a slave. And so in doing that, it's a mixture of a feminist reading because we're fo- focusing on a, a character that's not the main character as well as a character that's oppressed in some way by the main characters. And because of the oppression and the subsequent li- liberation, that's also reading it through our lens of liberation theology. And so when we do this, which is probably a different way than you've ever thought about or read the story before, it's going to create a lot of tension in this story. It's going to make us uncomfortable. I know reading this story in this way for the first time made me uncomfortable because it brings questions, it brings tension to the surface that we don't see reading the story through the eyes of any of the other characters except for Hagar. And so I want to kind of warn you about that as we open, but I also want to say that All of the tension won't be resolved. That's something that's, I think, a beauty of the Old Testament in general. We're going to ask a lot more questions in this episode than we're going to be able to answer. But they're questions that we're forced to ask and struggle with and think about as we try to understand these events through the eyes of Hagar. Yeah, and I I think alongside that, um, having, having taught this, I don't know from a, a liberation theology standpoint, at least not consciously. Maybe I, maybe I accidentally touched on it. Uh, but in talking about this subject from a, a background character standpoint of mm-hmm. looking at Hagar and 
what's unique about her perspective uh, within the narrative here. Uh, it it does present its difficulties, but it's and the reason why part of the reason why we're covering it today. It's rewarding. It's rewarding to do things like that to get a fuller picture of what's taking place, especially in the Old Testament where there is so there's so much culture and things that are, are far removed from us uh, that seeing all the angles gives us a, a fuller picture of what's going on and how God's interacting with that world. So definitely, uh, I think with that, start jumping into the text here. If you have a Bible, follow along with us. We're going to read just the opening verses here, Genesis 16, uh, verses 1 through 2. We'll, we'll break this up into sections, and I'll, I'll read our little parts, and then uh, Spencer will deal with some of the, the questions uh, that come as a result. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. Pretty straightforward beginning here. Supposed to have this kid. Supposed to have kids. That was the, I mean, having children was the thing that needed to be done uh, for Families, especially within that culture, you wanted to have large families, and Sarai isn't cutting it. So she offers up Hagar. That'll present some problems here in a moment, but initially pretty innocent, if maybe not the best choice. Uh, go go a little deeper into all this for us, Spencer. Right, right. And, you know, I think it's important that we also remember, you know, God's made this promise to Abram of having yes. these great descendants. And so we've got a lot of problems with Sarai not being able to have children, you know, things not working out. And so she hands over Hagar and it says, Sarai says that she does it so that I shall obtain children by her. In Hebrew, what that literally says is that I may be built up by her. So, mm. you know, you, you think about, especially at this time, that having family, having children, male children in particular, was so important and Sarai can't, really what she's doing is she's wanting to be built up through Hagar. She can't do it herself. And so she says, Abram, take my servant Hagar so that I can be built up through her. And one of the first questions that we must ask when we're trying to read and understand this story through the eyes of Hagar is asking the question first of how old is Hagar when this is going on? So the ESV says that Hagar is a female servant or a female slave of Sarai. Mm -hmm. The NRSV translates that slave girl, and female can have either one of those meanings. So Hagar can be anywhere from the age of you know probably 12 all the way up. And so we don't know, is she a, a young girl? Is she a young adult? Is she middle-aged? I mean, how old is this slave woman or this slave girl, Hagar, as she's going through um, these events. And so, you know, it that's one thing that we have to think about her going through these at these different ages, because we don't know how old she is. And if we're going to empathize with her, understand the story, we need to think about how her age might affect uh, the way that she deals with and the things that she has to go through here. Yeah, because we do know in verse 16, 
Abrams 86. So mm-hmm. we know very aware of his age. There's quite a quite a disparity here. Hey, hey Hagar is definitely very 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 much younger than Abram. Um yes. Yes. And how much younger? We don't know exactly, but it could be very very young. Um, <laughs> it could be four varies. It's definitely so, three varies. <laughs> so when you Yeah. And that's one thing you have to understand when, gap here. when you understand that she's a slave, though, because as a slave, it means Hagar doesn't have a choice in this matter. It's not, hey, right. Hagar, do you want to marry Abram and bear his child? She's not asked. As a slave, she's right. going to be told, hey, Hagar, this is what you're going to do. And so when you think about this age discrepancy and that she's a slave and she's being forced into this, I mean, try to put yourself in Hagar's shoes and understand what it would be like for her to deal with all of this, to be forced into the situation. And as uncomfortable as this may make us, I'm just going to be honest, we would call this sex trafficking today, what Abram and Sarai do in forcing Hagar, a young woman or a young girl, into this relationship. Uh, because like I said, as a slave, she she really doesn't have a, a choice. And I think we understand the, the peril of her situation even more when we think about, you know, any of you uh, that are listening that are married with children, you know that you're not normally with someone one time and then you get pregnant. That's normally not the way that it happens. So you also have the question of how long did this relationship go on before Hagar finally got pregnant? Um, yeah. And that's not easy to think about. It's disturbing in some ways. It makes us uncomfortable. But those are the questions we have to think about when we're looking at it through her eyes. I mean, she's this young girl, this young woman who's forced into this relationship with Abram. And we don't know how long until she finally gets pregnant, which is ultimately what they're trying to do. But then you have the question here of when Sarai suggests this, it says that Abram listened to her voice. Abram just kind of went along. And so that raises the question of why doesn't Abram argue with Sarai? Uh, Why why does he seem so willing to do this? I mean, we would, most of us would hope Abraham would at least put up a little bit of a fight and say to some degree, maybe this isn't the best idea. Maybe we shouldn't be treating Hagar like this. I mean, that's something that we would hope, but we don't see that at all in the story. Uh, Abram just kind of, Okay, I think this is a good idea. Let's let's do it. Let's use this slave girl to build ourselves up, which is in essence what they're both doing um, in using her in this way. Yeah, and there's there's this, uh, I mean, faith issue that is going to take place here. It's it's all about this fulfillment of this covenant made uh, in the previous chapter. This is what's going to happen. You know, here, here, this child's going to come. I'm going to make your offspring uh, countless. You're, you're going to be the father of all these nations. And okay, but how, how are we going to bring this about? How are we going to make this uh, accomplished? They don't leave it up to God. They try to take it in their own hands uh, to deal with the situation. So if we were looking at this from not Hagar's perspective then we're dealing with a, a faith issue and Abraham's very central to, to the faith discussion mm-hmm. throughout his whole time throughout this. But from a Hagar perspective, yeah, I mean, we've already hit some very challenging issues of 
forced into a sexual relationship at a young age with a much older individual and all the while there's just like yeah it's it's just an exchanging of of hand it's just goods that's all it is that's it that's that's what her perspective is she is just something to be used for the sake of benefiting somebody else mm-hmm. uh, and this is going to lead to some problems here uh, verses three through five in this next section we see the uh, immediate at least from a text perspective immediate consequences immediate regrets feelings towards this starting in verse three So Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan. Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. I've got a little footnote about... uh, the contempt thing. I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that, but yeah, not, not a good situation. It's when you do something you're not sure of, and then it happens and you immediately feel this sense of, okay, what did I just do? That's where Sarah's at, but there's, there's some interesting stuff here. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it immediately goes wrong. And the first question that I think is important to ask here is from whose perspective do is this look of contempt by Hagar spoken about? Because the the text doesn't tell us. And by whose perspective, I mean, does Hagar actually look at Sarai with contempt? Or does Sarai look at Hagar and assume or think that Hagar's looking upon her with contempt? I mean, because I think we've all been in a situation where someone's looked at us and we thought that they were mad at us. And so we ask them about it, but they weren't actually mad, right? We right. misinterpreted the look. and But the text doesn't actually tell us whose perspective uh, this look, through whose perspective this look is being interpreted. It just says Hagar looked on her with contempt. And so if you're doing what we said, again, a feminist reading, we're reading it through the eyes of, of Hagar, that... Typically, what you're going to do there is you're going to take the approach of, okay, what would this story look like if we assume that Hagar didn't look at her with contempt? It's just perceived that way. That's typically kind of the way that you'll read it. But I want us to think about it both ways. You know, if Hagar does actually look that way upon Sarah, why does she do it? And I mean, there's a multitude of reasons that you could give. Two that immediately come to my mind is that Hagar may be bragging about being able to have a child that Sarah apparently couldn't, kind of like a look at me, I was able to get pregnant and you couldn't. Um, But it also could have been Hagar bragging about her relationship with Abram. I mean, I think we would be foolish not to think that after Abram takes Hagar as a wife and Hagar bears him a child, that there isn't some kind of special relationship there. And... um, you know, maybe that's why Sarai gets so mad because she sees that they've got some kind of special connection, special bond, because Hagar's the mother of Abram's child now. And so it could be Hagar saying, again, look at me, look at the relationship. I have a relationship with Abraham that you don't. And at least at this point in the story, we could assume that you'll never have, because at this point, we don't know that eventually Sarah is going to have a child. Right. Um, but if we think about it the other way and we think that, well, maybe Sarah's just 
assuming uh, because she's angry at Hagar is seeing something that's not actually there. Uh, the reason for that could be simply that Sarai regrets her decision. Now that she's seeing what it results in, um, maybe think back to that relationship that is now exists between Hagar and Abram, and she's seeing the results of her decision. She could be regretting it. And so she's already angry at Hagar, uh, angry that Hagar uh, bore a child and she couldn't, angry of Hagar's special relationship with Abram now as the mother of his child. Because mm. re remember, Sarai says that she wants Abram to have a child with Hagar so that she can be built up. Right. But it seems like it actually works in the opposite direction. Rather than Sarai being built up, Hagar ap appears to be built up. And so now Sarah and Hagar, and Hagar are on more of a evil, uh, more of an even playing field. Because as the servant, um, Hagar was definitely lower than Sarai. But now Hagar's Abram's wife, the mother of Abram's children, uh, or the, the mother of Abram's child. And so that elevates Hagar's status a little bit and doesn't really do anything to Sarai's. So now they're more even than they were before. And so it there's maybe some of the regret too. It seems rather than building her up, it almost pushes Sarah, Sarai down and works in the opposite direction. So this, uh, this thought occurred to me here. Uh, well, two thoughts. One, it's, it seems like to me, and again, regardless uh, what you said here about the, the playing field stands, as, you, as you've said, it seems to me that the text kind of says, in the same way that, uh, like with Adam and Eve, uh, several chapters before this, where uh, they, they say, well, here's what happened, but before that, the text says, here's the thing that happened, and then you hear their, their interpretation of how things work. You know, they took the fruit, well this is what took place. Well, that's not really it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and it, it seems to me either way this works, but it seems to me that, okay, here's what happened. Sarai looks with contempt and then says, well, you know, it was her, she did it. No, you, I think it's more on her regardless. Uh, what you said about playing field is what happens. And this was number two. And I'm not sure if these words are the same, but we have the tower of Babel, narrative in chapter 11 and they're trying to build themselves up make a name for ourselves sort of thing mm -hmm. the word built is used i wonder if it's the same as here i'm not sure uh, but in both there and here uh, man is trying to liberate self to to bring self to prominence to bring self to a high position and it backfires <laughs> Uh, and that is, I mean, there are a lot of New Testament parallels we could bring into this as well. But uh, in, in considering the liberation theology, it's there's a lot of elevation of self trying to get ourselves out of uh, these dark places. Mm -hmm. Never works out. It's always a mess up every single time. And even from Hagar's perspective, uh, we're seeing her through somebody else's bad decision yeah. uh, get pulled from a dark place backfires on Sarai. Now it's a level playing field and not a good situation to be in. A really bad situation from a human standpoint for Hagar. 
uh, as we keep reading here in verse 6. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Um, hey, Abraham wants to speak up now. Uh, he didn't before with the original idea, but now that he's in trouble, like, hey, you know, she's yours. Do with do with her whatever you please. You know, it's uh, I, you know, doesn't want to be on Sarai's bad side, I guess. Uh, but that's what we have in verse six. Yeah, her, her harsh yeah. treatment of of Hagar. Well, and yeah, we we continue to see here the abuse of Hagar at the yeah. hands of particularly Sarai, but also Abraham is a participant, even though it, yeah, he's he's complicit. In yeah, like like you said, he he almost tries to distance himself a little bit from everything that's going on here, but he's allowing all of this to happen, right? Um, and dealing harshly is probably a a very bad thing uh, so the the phrase deal harshly is used to refer to Israel's suffering as slaves in Egypt and so to deal harshly with Hagar is probably more than Sarai you know yelling at her or something like that right uh, it's probably more along the lines of beating Hagar who's pregnant at this point I mean let's understand again we're trying to understand it from Hagar's perspective you've you've just conceived a child from abram and his other wife's mad at you and so he's like yeah just take her and do whatever you want with her and then you get beaten by sarai while you're pregnant i mean no, no wonder she flees i mean it right, right. It, it starts to make sense and we finally have abraham saying something but he still doesn't stand up for hagar he doesn't stand up for the the mother of his child he's just like do whatever you want with her which again, put yourself in Hagar's shoes. How would that make you feel? The the father of your child is just allowing you to be mistreated however you want, uh, pretty much. And so at, at this point, I think it's helpful to make a couple notes about Sarai and Hagar because it's it's obvious at this point in the story that Sarai hates Hagar. I mean, and yeah. I, I don't think that's an understatement. It's interesting. Sarai never actually says Hagar's name, never calls her by name in the mm. in the narrative. As she gets angry because of this look of contempt, she deals harshly with her here. In chapter 21, after Hagar's child, Ishmael, is born, she sees Ishmael laughing, and she, as a result, she wants Hagar and Ishmael thrown out. I mean, just something as innocent as a child laughing sets Sarai right. off on Hagar. And so again, imagine how hard life would be for Hagar living with Sarai because it's we're not told how much time passes between these different events. I mean, it, it looks like they happen one after another, but that's most likely not the case. Um, Hagar probably had to live in this situation for a long period of time. Time. I mean, who knows what else happened between her right. and Sarai that's not recorded for us. Yeah, uh, it, not a good situation. And a situation she had no choice in. Mm -hmm. uh, a forced position and now uh, dealing, uh, dealing with the fallout of somebody else's bad decision uh, and, is, and is now having to deal with all these consequences just... 
a very difficult story, especially when looked at through uh, through Hagar's perspective. That being said, when we hit verse seven, uh, we start to have this this narrative shift, which ends up being the 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 hill moment, the the rising to the mountaintop. Are you ready for me to go into to the end part of this here in chapter six? Uh, one comment that I'll make real quick that's sure. just it's just kind of interesting. Over and over so far, Hagar has been mentioned as an Egyptian slave, which when you're reading through Genesis, uh, just for people's personal study, uh, keep that in mind because. This these events are leading us to Israel's relationship with Egypt. Yeah, it's not coincidental that the that the text goes out of its way to make sure that we know that Hagar is an Egyptian, um, and then eventually Israel, the descendants of Abraham, become captives in Egypt, and so that's. We won't spend any more time on that, but just for personal study, as you're reading through Genesis, that's there's a connection being made there. And so uh, that's something else that's important in this story to keep in mind is where Hagar is from. Yeah, I believe we mentioned in the last episode through the Kings and Chronicles and Joshua and other places that Egypt is regularly called out. Uh, Solomon's wife as well. This is this is on the front end of that, right? Uh, in dealing with liberation of, we're building towards them being enslaved. The other end is is a reference back to their having been freed. Uh, yeah, very cool stuff in Genesis, uh, and plays a good. It's at least twice uh, that Egyptian is mentioned here uh, so far. Verse one and verse uh, three. And maybe even more than that. So, well, yeah, and here, it's you. You know that they're trying to emphasize that because you're not going to forget that she's a, an Egyptian between verse one and verse three, right? Um, right. So that just keep that in mind. It's important. Write it down as you read uh, verses seven through thirteen here as we we tie into this uh, the uplifting part of the story. The the God God now enters the text. Uh, here. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the, sp- the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, <clears throat> behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Very good, uh... Very good way that this, and and obviously it it picks up in chapter 21 uh, with Ishmael, as was mentioned ago, but even then, uh, this whole idea of of sight and God speaking to her, that comes back later Mm -hmm. there. Uh, A very good end to what is, as we've looked at so far, a a very tragic, difficult situation for for Hagar here. Yeah, we we begin to see some aspects of God liberating Hagar. Um, yep. 
It's interesting to note the the angel appears and is the first character in the narrative to call Hagar by name. Uh, Sarai and Abram don't call her by name. She's just a slave. She's a servant. But when God shows up on the scene, God's going to call her by name. Uh, He's going to call her Hagar. And then he's going to make the same promise to her pretty much that he had made to Abram about multiplying her descendants, which is very, very cool. And so what what we see here is we see God listening to the cries of Hagar. We see God seeing the abuse that Hagar goes through as this abused slave. And that's why Hagar names God, you are a God of seeing, because she says, you look after me. God sees her and her victimization, sees her oppression, sees her abuse, and shows up on the scene, calls her by name, and makes this great promise to her. And then we have Hagar, who's the the first person to give God a name. Yeah. Uh, pretty much the only person in Scripture that actually names God, that gives God a special, distinctive name. Off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone else that falls under that description. There may be somebody else there, but normally you just have the generic name for God, and then you have Yahweh, which God gives to himself. Right. Uh, you, you you typically don't see people giving God a distinctive name, but Hagar does. She's allowed to name God. She's called by name. She's seen and heard by God. Yeah, and uh, we see we see this instance of naming a place after God or an event all the time, which she also does. But again, yeah, I can't think of one either. Uh, she, she gives God a name and it's, that's a, a big deal. And it's another one of those reminders too, uh, like when we get to James mentions Rahab and all this. Well, who's Rahab? This prostitute, this Gentile prostitute in Jericho. Like, oh, but she's she's part of the narrative. She's part of the bigger picture. And Hagar here is, well, who's who is she? Well, just this servant girl that's, well, no, to God, Hagar's Hagar. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the image of God, as we discussed in a, a couple episodes ago. This is somebody who God made. And God uh, is named by her. She, she sees him uh, just as, as he sees her. It's a very cool ending, and uh, here in a moment we'll talk about why this story is here. Uh, along the lines of extra cool study stuff in Genesis, uh, Genesis 16 and 21 with Hagar, uh, look at all these ideas of sight, how people are viewing each other, how Hagar sees things, how Sarai sees Hagar, how God sees all the people going on here. It's a very cool study as well. Uh, and it focuses your attention on Hagar too, uh, in a lot of ways, just in a bit of a different way as, as we have been today. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why put this here? Abraham is the guy for the Jewish people and obviously a major part, uh, a major point of discussion in the new Testament. So why have this here where Abraham is, uh, very much not doing a good job. Yeah, it would, you know, it would um, make sense to me to just leave this story out. I mean, why do you really need it? 
Or at least, why do you need to present Abraham in such a bad light? Which he is in this story, as as we've seen. He's presented in a very, very bad light for the decisions. Chapter 21 as well. I mean, that he's he not good in either. No, and for decisions, and really it's lack of decisions. He just kind of goes along with what Sarai wants here. Yep, yep. And is unwilling to stand up for Hagar. And so if if I was writing this, I would leave it out. But why does God want this included in Scripture, as you asked? And there's some ways that we could answer that from the perspective of uh, Abram and how that speaks to, you know, Abraham in the New Testament is held up as an image of faith. And so that's one way that you could answer the question. But that's not the way I'm going to answer the question because we're focusing on Hagar. And so from Hagar's perspective, why is this story here? That's the way I want to answer Um, this question. And I think the reason that God chooses to include this story is because God is giving a voice to Hagar. Uh, Through telling this story, God is letting Hagar tell her story of abuse. It's God giving a voice to the voiceless, God giving a voice to the victim. As we talked about last week, God has always been a God who is concerned with liberating people from oppression, whatever kind of oppression they may be going through. And by simply including Hagar's story, I think it's case in point about God's focus on liberating people. And so if we are going to be people who look like God, trying to give us a little bit of application from this story, you know, if that's our goal, if we want to be people who look like God, then we too must be people who give a voice to the voiceless, a people who help those who have been abused, those who have been mistreated, those who have been oppressed, like Hagar has, to help them to tell their story. In mm. today's world where the victim is most often silenced and the victimizer's voice is the one ringing out, it's the victimizer's voice that we tend to hear a lot. And that's, I think, in a good way has started to change with the results of the the Me Too movement, but I think what that movement has pointed out is case in point that more often than not, the victim is silenced and it's the victimizer that we get to hear. And as these things take place in the world today, I think the story of Hagar calls God's people to speak on behalf of the victim because God is a God who gives the victim a voice. And so God's people should be those who go out of their way to give a voice to those who are continuing to be victims of similar actions that Hagar went through as people are victims of similar things today. But I also think there's a second point of application for us in that I also believe that the story of Hagar gives an account for those who have been victimized, people who have been abused. It gives them a story to see themselves in. It gives them someone to relate to. They can see the story of Hagar and say, I've been through something similar. They have a a character that they can relate to. And when they do that, I think it can give hope to these individuals because God is depicted as one who not only gives them a voice, who allows them to tell their story, but God is presented as a God who hears their cries, who sees their affliction, and is ultimately in the business of not only blessing them in the midst of their tragedy, but seeking to liberate them from it. Hmm. You know, I, um, I preached on, uh, marriage the other day 
<clears throat> and spent a considerable amount of time talking about the love and submit ideas. But with submission, talked about, as you defined feminism earlier, you know, the, the idea you have in your head now is not what we're talking about when it comes to a, a textual uh, looking at uh, what is written here. I did the same thing with submission, that the word submit, that we have, the, the way we define it now and what we think is not what Paul is talking about mm -hmm. uh, in that particular text. <clears throat> and with all of that, uh, I, I added, there was a quote from an atheist the other day that discussed, even as an atheist, he said, going through, looking at history, studying the Bible as well, Old and New Testament, he said, God's people, people who believe in God, uh, in these ancient historical cities and towns, always elevated the people who were uh, these victims and others. Now, that's a generalization, obviously, Sarai, Abram, not doing that here. But his point was that the teachings of God are elevating of people, or mm -hmm. if we want to say it this way, liberating of people. You are not defined by the low position you're in, but God seeks to raise you out of those things. Uh, and this this is a perfect text to, as you say, give, give people something to identify with. Uh, for those of us who haven't experienced these things, to look at and go, what is my responsibility to those that have, uh, and, and what can I do for them? Uh, and then from the the victim standpoint of seeing somebody who they can identify with and relate to and say, wow, okay, this is who God is to the victim. This is who God is to me. Very cool text. Glad we got to, to jump into it. We have at least one more currently on the docket that was going to be what episode two yeah it was originally five. written as episode two so <laughs> but it is it'll be a text look at as well uh, i think a lot of our episodes are going to deal with these sorts of things if you like these let us know because uh, i know i enjoyed uh, going through this uh, text with you today and and discovering this stuff and looking at it from uh, the the lens of liberation theology and looking at hagar's story through the eyes of, of Hagar instead of Abram and Sarai. You can see all of our previous episodes, listen to those things on strongchurch.org. We'll have a lot of other content there as well, written and spoken, and even some video stuff, hopefully, uh, here in the future, uh, covering all these various ideas and things like that. We encourage you to check those out, strongchurch.org, and email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Send us your questions, your criticisms, uh, even uh, thoughts for, for topics you'd like us to cover in the future. We're happy to move the previous episode to uh, on down the line ad infinitum. I'm just if, trying to see how far back ideas. we can continue to push it. So <laughs> Yeah, it'll it'll be our meme. That's this <laughs> that'll always be oh episode two, do you mean episode twenty seven that we still haven't filmed yet? That'll be great. Enjoyed? The discussion today, hope you did too, and hope you uh, learned a little bit more about how and why to think theologically. I'm Jack, that's Spencer, we'll see you next time. <laughs>